I'm Amy Antonucci, and I'm here to welcome you to True Tales Live, coming to you from Portsmouth Public Media Television. Our mission at True Tales Live is to provide people with an encouraging space in which to tell their first-person experience stories, stories that reflect our community's personal and cultural diversity. Using on-stage, TV, radio, and public venues, and offering workshops in the art and practice of storytelling, we aim to help people bridge differences and build understanding and respect for all. While we encourage the development of storytelling skills with our monthly workshops and other assistance to tellers, this is not a competition. We have no ranking or scoring or judging. We believe that stories shared from the heart uplift and inspire us and bind us together. Through storytelling, people from vastly different backgrounds, places, and experiences can find common ground and connection and come together to create and sustain healthy, vibrant communities. Most of our shows have a theme to help get people's minds turning on what they have to share on a certain subject. This time, however, we are themeless. And um, we're just seeing what comes to us. Maybe each person here will find their own theme that runs through the stories. You can think about that over the night. We're going to hear five stories tonight from five different folks. We start with John Rochelot, then John Dover, Pat Spaulding, Ronnie Tomanio, and Michael Lang. They each have a 10-minute limit for their story. Our MC Pat Spaulding will introduce each one to you. Following the storytelling, we'll also have an on-air interview of two of tonight's storytellers. But first, for the stories. Let's welcome Pat Spaulding up to the stage to introduce the first one. Thank you, Amy. Now, first up, we have a new storyteller who has not yet performed on or told a story on True Tales Live, and his name is John Rochelot. Uh, he lives in Rye, is the newest member, as I said, of our storytelling team, and our first inventor. He became an inventor in 1996 when, out of necessity and coincidence, he created and licensed numerous products designed that changed the heating, ventilation, and air conditioning industry, HVAC. Not happy with the way the industry cheapened his products and made them in China, John invented new designs in 2010 and created his own product line that is now 100% made in USA. How great is that? <laughs> new Hampshire, Maine, Massachusetts, locally. And it isn't easy. <laughs> we'll talk about that a little later in the interview. John is a public speaker who teaches innovative ways of dealing with problems in business and in everyday life. He speaks on the radio, gives motivational talks at trade associations and educational institutions. His story tonight is titled, Problems, the Origin of Solutions. Come on up, John. Great, thank you. Thanks for coming to hear our stories. Um, I don't usually write stories that I tell, and I don't usually tell stories that I write. So tonight, I'm going to read a story that I wrote. Problems, the Origin of Solutions. In 1972, in Sutton, New Hampshire, 
My family's home had no central heating system. There was only an antique cast iron stove for three season heat and ambiance. It had mica windows in the front door through which the fire glowed. The house was intended to be some vacationer's summer camp, not a year round residence for 10 people. Dad's $100 a week carpenter's paycheck could never afford central heating. And mom didn't have a career outside the home. She had one in the home, raising eight kids and a couple of breeding stock Newfoundland dogs. Older Paul and I were the Irish twins in the middle, ages 10 and 11. And somehow we understood that we principally were responsible for keeping dry firewood stacked indoors that we'd previously cut from trees on our land with a misery whip an eight-foot-long push-me-pull-you saw. Cutting wood was hard work, but we were surrounded by other adversities as well. When I woke up hungry in the middle of the night, yet knew better than to complain, I tiptoed past the two blacker-than-night dogs into the kitchen and mixed sugar and water into paste to spread across white bread. When I couldn't get new sneakers, in winter no less, I taped the uppers to the lowers to keep the snow out, and I'd go shovel drives and walkways for a few coins, bills if the snow was deeper. When I had no pillow for my bed, I crudely made one with dryer lint. Basically, I created solutions to the problems that I could solve. By the time I reached 18 in 1980, I was facing few good career opportunities, so I took the first best one I encountered. The Comprehensive Employment and Training Act, CETA, actually paid me to take 400 hours of oil burner technology training at New Hampshire Vocational Tech College in Manchester. And my HVAC career was launched, yet I had no idea what unusual turns it would take. In 1996, by the time I paid serious attention to the unimaginably frustrating task of installing hot water heating circulator flanges, I had 15 years of invaluable experience troubleshooting heating system issues. Circulator flange. Exhibit A. So, no surprise, my first inventive moment in the trade began when I witnessed a plumber trying to install a flange on a boiler return pipe. He approached his task with a make-do-with-what-you've-got attitude, holding two screwdrivers through the bolt holes of the flange with one hand, and in between the screwdrivers with his other hand, he used the handle end of a ham hammer to try to turn the threaded flange, and suddenly slipped and gashed his hand open as it struck the sharp metal edge of the Honeywell circulator relay. Blood spewed from his hand, and I could almost feel his pain, and ran to my truck for a Band-Aid. No doubt, flanges weren't just my problem. I felt psychically connected to an impending solution after the plumber's mishap. I was myself installing 10 flanges on a heating system, and these four-letter-word-inducing, knuckle-busting, dumb cast-iron parts had boxed me into a corner. I was ready to strike back when the image of Mr. Plumber's injured hand restrained me. And that's when I realized that he could have prevented his injury, but if only he had the hand tool design that flashed across my mind's projector screen. <clears throat> it had the same quasi-elliptical shape as the flange itself and the same number of holes through it. The center hole had a hexagon shape around it so an adjustable wrench could tightly grip the tool and turn it. The two threaded outer holes allowed bolts to tightly connect to the tool to a flange. In concept, my flange tool was a much better solution than the plumber's method, and a much safer one. Right away, I ran to a patent lawyer who told me that I needed to find a pattern maker 
who could make the actual form of the tool, the prototype, and bring what was only in my head into physical existence. Then I could prove that my invention worked and possibly patent it. Interestingly, I actually knew a pattern maker. And when I got home from the patent lawyer's office, I anxiously dialed the number I had for David Nugent, a musician friend from 10 years in my past. And he answered, and he answered, hi, Dave, it's John Rochelot. John Rochelot. He seemed confused. Yeah, you remember me, the banjo player. I remember you. Only 10 minutes ago, your name popped in my head for no apparent reason. We both pondered that there might be some something divine guiding our reintroduction. Despite other projects like making 250 door handles for Bill Gates' new house, Dave agreed to meet with me to discuss my humble tool idea. Within a week, we met, we discussed, he delivered a simple machined bronze casting, my first flange tool prototype. Within a week, I said that, I showed the flange to the president of a local supply house, and he loved it but said that I should come back when I had a production run, inventory. Then we could talk. So without delay, I went back to Dave, and soon he had production pattern designs for what would become a three-component flange installation tool that I named Flange Type. From there, I went to the Concord Public Library to research in the Thomas Directory the companies that would make the necessary components for 50 Flange Type toolkits. In only a few months, I had the inventory the supply house president said I would need, and then he offered me free booth space at their upcoming trade shows. But at the first show in the fall of 96 at Yokin's Restaurant in Portsmouth, I didn't sell a single flange type. Then at the second show, where they served alcohol, while models strutted around in swimwear, I sold seven toolkits. <laughs> But after three more shows, I'd only sold a total of 11. Urgent to learn more about what tradesmen thought about flanges and other challenges in the trade and my own tool solution, I gave away T-shirts sporting the flange tight logo in exchange for a completed questionnaire. 91 plumbers and HVAC technicians' answers to exactly nine questions was all that I needed to make the flange tool better. So I got together with Dave again, and we designed VersaTurn, a ratcheting hand tool with custom attachments to install flanges, turn copper adapters, remove and install water heater elements, and other tasks. Then I created another production run, this time on credit cards. Again, I went to the supply house president, who told me that I needed a rep, not him. He gave me several names, and I landed a fish with my first cast. I reeled in a tool rep. He loved my bait. He, too, provided free booth space at upcoming trade shows around New England. Then there was another rep and another tool redesign. <clears throat> and then the last rep. And finally, the last plumber who said at the last trade show, at the last Holiday Inn in Portland, Maine, yeah, why do they make the flange that way? <laughs> I had sold only a handful of my tools in the past two years and spent tens of thousands of dollars, what, just to prove to myself what the solution wasn't? task-specific tools. That plumber's statement said it all. I'd seen and heard enough, and I felt like I had one last chance to become a successful inventor. Newly motivated, I met with Dave to resurrect the first design that sprang from our very first meeting, the flange that I had him turn into a flange tool. <clears throat> 
The only difference between my new flange design and the industry standard problem flange was mine had an octagon wrench grip surface, so an ordinary adjustable wrench could be used to turn it. Industry standard wrench surface. <clears throat> um, rather quickly, other designs came to me, and miraculously, so did money from an angel investor. In fact, within six months, I'd invented dozens of flanges with and without valves, and began negotiating with manufacturers of circulators. By the end of 1999, I signed two license agreements with a Rhode Island manufacturer, and in 2000, a royalty stream from the sale of my new flanges began to arrive in my mailbox every quarter for the next three years. <clears throat> Fast forward 10 years. In 2010, not satisfied that my prior design solved all that needed to be solved with flanges, I created new patentable flanges and valves and other products that resolve completely different issues in the HVAC trade. And I have them all made, as Pat said, in Maine, New Hampshire, and Massachusetts. I have so many products of my own design now that they comprise the second greatest number of mechanical components by brand on my forced hot water heating system installations. Only the pipe and fitting makers have more product units than me. I've learned that tackling problems head on can lead to solutions in everyday life, even to successful products. Now, 37 years later, my HVAC career has taken me somewhere I couldn't have imagined as a kid, frozen in his bed in February in a summer camp with no central heating. Thank you, John. I actually um, looked at those flanges uh, three or four times and the fourth time, it's, oh, yeah, I see the difference. So um, that was very educational. I learned something about flanges that I never thought I needed to know. <laughs> Next up, we have John Dover. He has worked for 38 years as a high school guidance counselor before finally retiring in 2014 to live with his wife and son in Northampton, New Hampshire. From an early age, John wanted to be a writer. I understand your pain, but he didn't think he could make a living at it. All right. Um, so he earned a degree in psychology and struggled to make a living with that. <laughs> After climbing the job ladder from childcare worker at the Methodist Home for Children in Philadelphia to a CETA-funded job for the chronically unemployed as tutor counselor at Crotchet Mountain Rehab Center, he finally landed a solid career position as guidance counselor at Winnicunnet High School in Hampton. Tonight, he'll tell us about his journey to the University of Utah to pursue his master's degree in counseling. John wasn't really sure it was a good idea when he started out, and as the road unfolded, questions came up to which he did not have good answers. I'll let him tell you the rest of the story, titled, Going West in the 71 Pinto. Come on up, John. Let's hear about it. I don't know how the rest of you feel about long car trips, but I've always felt that being enclosed in a car with, especially if it's just one or two other people, fosters communication. And I love that sense of depth that you can get from good uh, conversation. So 
when I had gotten accepted at the University of Utah in this counseling position, I was living in Philadelphia at the time, and my parents had given me the 71 Pinto to get out there because I hadn't really thought about how I was going to do that yet. Um, I decided, let me see if I can get a rider to go with me at least part of the way to uh, Utah. And so I went to the University of Pennsylvania ride board, and um, this student who was going out to visit her mom in Ohio said she'd go part of the way with me, and I was like, great. So I picked her up, and um, right away we had this great conversation, depth and meaning. It was just terrific. And we're, we're driving along for hours and hours, and finally she says, um, you know, we have covered so much territory. I wonder how you feel about sex. And I wish I could have said, I love it. It's great. <laughs> but I couldn't say anything. I felt just uncomfortable, but I couldn't even say that either. So I changed the topic. I changed the subject of the conversation. And we kept, I kept driving along, and now it's dark, and we're heading into Ohio. And so once again, she says to me, you never told me about how you feel about sex. Do you want to talk about that? And I guess I didn't, because I changed the subject again. <laughs> and finally, we get to her mom's place, and I sleep on the couch overnight and get up early in the morning, I'm on my way west. Um, the next thing I remember is I'm in Indianapolis, still on a major highway, and I'm driving along and suddenly, blam, ba-boom, 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 ba-boom. And I knew something really bad had happened, so I pulled to the side of the road with difficulty, get out of the car, and I've had a blowout. And I am so glad that my father made me watch Arthur Gilman, our next-door neighbor, change a tire with snow on the ground back in Summit, New Jersey, when I was in junior high, because that and the owner's manual enabled me to get the jack out of the car, and I, get, I start to get the Pinto up in the air, and these semis are going by, whoo, 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 and each time they do it, the car is vibrating a little bit, and I'm kind of thinking, What's going to happen if it falls? But it doesn't. I get the tire changed, and I'm back in the car, and I'm feeling great because, wow, I just did accomplish something. And so I'm on my way west. And a day or two later, I'm in Wyoming, Cheyenne, Wyoming, and I need to use the bathroom, and I'm tired, and I'm hungry, so I get off the interstate, um, pull into a, a bar, um, get a sandwich and a beer, and um, I'm, I'm feeling refreshed, start to get back on 80. On the entrance ramp, there's a hitchhiker. And this is, um, so I, I, I've hitchhiked a lot, all over the country, in fact. And so I said, you know, let's give something back here. So I stopped the Pinto. And he's got this great big backpack, and I'm kind of thinking, I don't even know if we're going to be able to get this into the car, because this is all my stuff in this tiny little car. But we stop, and this is also a great big guy, heavy beard, um, kind of on the rough side, but that's okay. And so we push and shove and finagle, and eventually we get the backpack into the car. Get in, we're en route 80 heading west, 
good conversation. Not as good as the first one, but it's good. <laughs> and we're getting on, you know, it's, it's dark. And so he says to me after a while, I wonder how you would feel if I put my hand on your leg. And I knew how I would feel, which was not good. I did not want him to do that. But I couldn't say anything because I thought, well, what if I say no and he does it anyway? Then I'm going to, what am I going to do then? I don't have an answer. So I changed the subject <laughs> of the conversation. And we continue on. And this goes, and it's, it seems to be, have worked. And then by this time, it's like around midnight. We're on the road a couple more hours. And um, so this time he says, I think it's time for me to put my hand on your leg. And this time I know I'm not going to be able to talk him out of it by changing the, the topic of the conversation. So I blurt out the first thing that comes to my mind. And I say, well, what would you say if I told you I was an alien from outer space? And then the strangest thing happens. He doesn't respond, but the lights go out. And on 80, I'm going down the mountain, and not only is it pitch black, there's no sound in the car. And each of us are kind of like just dealing with the dark, and you can hear the wheels on the road. Um, but that's it. And I'm thinking, I don't know what happened, but I'm the driver here. i got to do something. So it occurs to me, maybe I turned the headlights off in my anxiety, and so I try pulling the lever, and sure enough, the headlights go on. And I hear from my hitchhiker, wow. <laughs> and I'm feeling exactly the same way, because now I can see the road, and I haven't gone off the side of the mountain. And it's such a relief. And so I'm, I've got energy again too and so I keep driving and driving and now it's like four or five in the morning and the hitchhiker hasn't asked me about my leg anymore <laughs> and that's a good thing and because I don't know what I would do with a follow-up and so I get off route 80 um, and I say to him and, and there's, this is nowhere uh, Wyoming and I say to him I just have to stop for about an hour and try and get some shut-eye and he, I think he's already asleep, but if not, he's like, fine. So, and like, we've got stuff jammed up to the back of the, uh, the Pinto, so I can't put the seat back, but I'm, I'm just there, and I'm out in seconds. I'm just sound asleep. And the next thing I know, the sun is pouring in, sweat, drool, and i got to go to the bathroom. I, I, I go outside, and um, as I'm walking back to the car, it's like kind of on an angle, and I look down, I've got a flat tire, only now I don't have a spare because I used the spare to, to fix the first flat. But something has changed, and my passenger has gone from sexual predator to ally somehow. <laughs> and so I'm not really worried. I'm kind of, I know inside somehow I'm going to get into town and I'm going to find someone that can fix the tire and come back and get us on the road. And that's exactly what happened in a couple of hours. And I felt so good about this guy at this point. I mean, I, I felt like we were friends. 
and I drive him all the way to the Bonneville Salt Flats and let him um, off to get a ride to see his stripper girlfriend in Vegas, which he now tells me about. And I head back to the University of Utah uh, to start my education there. Don't have a place to live yet. And what I want you to take from this story is if someone has designs on you that you don't feel the same way about, don't change the subject. Don't try the ploy of alien from outer space. Just say no. Pat Spaulding is our next teller. Pat is a retired puppeteer who now has the good fortune of doing pretty much what she wants. Identifying herself as a monologist majorette, Pat writes and tells stories, is a majorette with the left, leftist marching band, sings with the Contutti Chorus, and is the MC for True Tales Live Storyteller Program right here. She's been thinking about the story she'll tell tonight for quite a while, but has never written it down or told it. In mulling over, dealing with a boyfriend in your 60s, Pat came to the realization that once a person is single again, no matter what their age, it all goes back to high school. The same questions, concerns, Insecurities pop up now as they did way back then. Her story is titled, Gladys and the Boyfriend. Pat? Thank you. <clears throat> All right, so I'm in my 60s, single. And I kind of want to change that, but not a whole lot. I want to change some things. So what do you do first after getting your official divorce. Well, you think about it and think about it. And then you go on Match.com, and then that doesn't work. And so then you figure, well, okay, I am just going to be who I am. I'm going to go out and meet people, and I'll run into somebody sometime, somewhere. Nobody goes out as much as I do. Nobody meets as many people as I do. I don't meet boyfriends. They're not out there. Sorry, ladies, <laughs> if anybody's single, I don't, you know, that's not the route. However, a few years ago, the coincidence of timing and location did, in fact, bring a boyfriend down a driveway, a soon-to-be boyfriend, as I was walking down the road, and we met. And um, he was kind of cute. He was tall, he had nice hair, and he was uh, chatting it up with me and giving me positive attention. And I thought, this is pretty good. So um, we started dating a little bit. And um, I found out that he had some skills. He could build things. He was good with tools. He could drive. I even think he had a job at the time. <clears throat> All fine qualities for a boyfriend. Um, if, if you could compare the two of us, he was probably the prettier one. I was telling friends, I've got a boyfriend. And they said, lucky you. And then they thought better of it and said, oh, lucky him. <laughs> and so it went. T 
to Christmas, about six months, because we got together in um, July, and Christmas was coming, and Christmas is always kind of a biggish deal with a, a new whomever. And so we went through the deal, and then the presents were exchanged. That was all pretty good. And he gave me a present that I particularly liked. It was a, a little soft bathrobe, white one, fleece, and it had polka dots, pink and gray polka dots, like about that big on it. And it matched my canoe. I happened to have a polka dot canoe, <laughs> which he knew I liked. And so he thought I would like this polka dot bathrobe, which I did. It was thoughtful. And um, I told him I liked it, and so great. Now, I got to tell you, at this point, um, there were maybe a couple of little red flags. He probably saw them in me, too. But uh, for one thing, he'd been single for 10 years. And a guy in his 50, good, good looking, has jobs, all that sort of things. Like, they're not single for 10 years. They're unavailable sooner than that. So I just was, what's going on here? Maybe he's particularly picky. Well, he was particularly picky. In fact, he was so picky that he had written out a list of qualities he was looking for in a woman. And he posted it on his refrigerator. And he shared it with me. So that I could find out if I had those qualities. Um, this was thoughtful to some extent, you know, write it down, make it happen. Uh, I'm somewhat of a proponent of that. And I'm going to share a few of these qualities just so you get an idea. Um, conversationally, supportive of my life, not a drunk, trustworthy, uh, respect me as I am, not critical, able to talk issues through, sure, accepts responsibility for their own stuff, uh-huh, yeah, appropriate behavior in a loving relationship, why not, affectionate, okay, respects my thoughts and concerns, allows my sense of humor to glow, 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 little, yeah, non-judgmental, non-negative, um, shares appropriateness, I would share that if it was appropriate, um, be my friend, okay, um, has a sense of humor, sure. Be spiritual, yeah, yeah. Not a big fan of TV, desires to learn new stuff, enjoys sunsets, reads books, listens to my bad days. Okay. Um, enjoys music, concerts, interested in life, not into spending a lot of my money. Okay, I'm not going to spend your money. Uh, likes to dance. I like to dance. Uh, enjoys the universe, our presence, likes to hike, camp, bike, boat, ski. Wow, that's mostly me, right? Exhausting, but me. Enough. <clears throat> so, I was kind of okay with uh, the list and, and the bathrobe. And then it was Valentine's Day. I don't like Valentine's Day. Too much pressure. Usually you're with somebody that you want to be more romantic with or you're, you're, it just doesn't work out. That's too much pressure. I don't like it. Last time I liked Valentine's Day, it was like fourth grade when it was communistic and everybody got the same Valentine and you gave it to them. <laughs> just fine. Then Valentine's is done. But I knew that he was a romantic and he was going to have to do something special. I prepared myself. And he, um, he did a, a nice job. There was wine and the dinner out and the chocolates and the flowers and the exchange of cards, all lovely. Um, and then a, a special present in a box. Gave it to me at his house. I opened the box. It's a teddy bear. Did I ask for a teddy bear? Do I look like a woman who needs a teddy bear? <laughs> It was cute. All teddy bears are cute. And it was kind of special because this particular teddy bear had a little fleece robe with a belt like the one that he'd given me that I appreciated. And it was white and had pink hearts. 
cute. And it had matching slippers, yes. And it had um, a sleeping mask that you pull down over its little beady black eyes or you could put it up. And so um, this was also thoughtful because he knew that I don't sleep well. I'm an insomniac. And so the sleeping mask, the bathrobe, the little slippers, cuteness, it's like, I should appreciate this. Who wouldn't? What woman wouldn't? So I kind of, yeah, that's very cute. It was made in China on its butt. Had a little tag, made in China. We should have made it in New Hampshire. And then I would have appreciated it more. <laughs> but I figured, you know, I'm not going to be picky. It's not like there's uh, another boyfriend waiting in the wings. You work with what you've got. And so I was going to try to be appreciative of this teddy bear. Now, at this point, I'm going to share page three of the qualities he was looking for in a woman, which I did not notice at first because I'd only read the first two pages. I mean, after all, there were 35 qualities, and I'm a slow reader. I was busy. I figured I got the gist, okay. But I shared this list with my therapist because um, I was talking about the boyfriend, and so she, said, she asked me, did you read the whole list? I said, yeah. I said, all three pages? Oh, three pages? Okay, so on page three, you get the sexual part. Now, I'm not going to go into details because I don't want to embarrass myself nor you, but I'll just kind of give you a little rhythmical sexually attracted, sexually active, sexually exclusive, strong, yes, not making the other, trust, uh, desire, experimentation, comfortable sharing, making the other, okay, interested, yeah, desire, desire, too, desire, okay, giving, receiving, yeah, enjoy mutual, yeah, 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 explore all, yeah, deep, passionate, nah, knowing and wanting guidance as to, okay, and the last, I'm just, this is GP, so I will, I will read the last words as is. Snuggling, holding hands, walking together, arms entwined, sleeping closely together, hugging, kissing, gazing into each other's eyes. What's wrong with a woman who wouldn't really want all that? <laughs> I don't know, but actually, <laughs> The bear came with a bit of an agenda. As much as I was trying to appreciate all the cuteness, he said that he was giving it to me as a placeholder to put on my bed when he wasn't there. Oh, boy. Now, here's the thing. If I was to make a list of qualities I was looking for in a boyfriend, there would probably be two. One is there when I want him to be there on the refrigerator. Number two is not there when I don't want him to be there. <laughs> what else? I mean, that's pretty much kind of covers it, doesn't it? So I suggested, seeing as how he liked all this teddy bear cuddly stuff, and, and me not so much, to be honestly reactive, I thought it was a good idea for me to leave the bear as a placeholder for me on his bed when I wasn't there, and um, that way, she'd be appreciated more by him. And although I liked her, but uh, happy Valentine's Day, see ya. And then, you know, I figured we'd work it out later, maybe. But I heard his feelings, I guess, and the bear's feelings, apparently. And so it wasn't too long, another month or two. He was just kind of like, no, this relationship is not going where I want it to go. I'm breaking up. Wait a minute, you're breaking up with me? That's not the way this thing is supposed to work. 
I'm going to break up with you when I'm ready to break up with you. And of course, when somebody says they're going to break up with you, then you want them back. So there's this whole, I took the bear. All right. I named her Gladys. Come on, Gladys. I'm taking you home. And then Gladys and the boyfriend had text conversations because I would text from Gladys with little photos of her, you know, being um, drunk and um, all apologetic and, and funny stuff. And he didn't laugh. And then I texted another photo of Gladys all tangled up in a net black body stocking that he'd given me that I would not wear. And um, funny stuff again, but nope, he didn't laugh. He just was not laughing. I couldn't jolly him up with that, you know, I couldn't make his sense of humor glow. <laughs> so, um, as you might suspect, it ended. However, I know that it's a terrible thing, especially this close to Valentine's Day, to have a romantic story like I began without a happy ending. So I'm going to give you one. <laughs> now, Gladys and I, <clears throat> although the, when the boyfriend was finally gone, developed a pretty good relationship. I got into this cuteness thing, because I took Gladys home, and I set her on various beds at various times, and sometimes she's, you know, she's like a Goldilocks. She's here or there, and she's got little friends that she sleeps with. There's a squirrel that she cuddles, and then after that, there was a baby dog that when you squeeze it, it barks. And currently, she's been hanging with a beanie baby rainbow bear that uh, my sort of grandson made a little sleeping mask for. So Gladys and I have um, worked it out. I'm now embracing her cuteness. She is an undemanding constant in my life who accepts, without a murmur, my very flawed self. I'm not asking for anyone else to be unflawed. Gladys is not a conversationalist, but she's supportive of my life. Literally, she's supportive. I lean back in bed at night to read a book and place her on my stomach, put my book there, and she supports it. <laughs> Gladys is there when I need her. And she's not when I don't. <laughs> And for those of you in TV land, I just got to share. There she is, you know? Yep. Cute, huh? Her beanie baby companion. Okay, thank you, Gladys. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> and now I'm going to be introducing who is coming next. And I didn't bring up the, uh, there we go. Here, I'll trade you, Amy. Ronnie Tamanio from Elliot to, to Maine. He's the author of five fiction and nonfiction books with two more on the way. His work with people who have disabilities led him to seven years of co-hosting the popular show Don't Dis My Ability, a program of community involvement that started in Portsmouth on the radio and has recently moved to being recorded and aired right here at PPM TV. Ronnie says that his mother was a great storyteller and would have made a terrific addition to True Tales Live, except for one difficulty, her inability to separate fact from fiction. 
Or maybe that's just the difficulty of the listener. In these times of alternative facts, who knows the difference? Perhaps we'll get some insight about this dilemma from Ronnie's story, truth or fiction? Come on up, Ronnie. Well, I've had a great time so far. I, I hope I don't ruin your evening. <laughs> um, fact from fiction, truth from fiction. I could never tell growing up. I'll give you one memory. All of a sudden, from living in a small Hudson River town in New York, we end up in Iowa. Much to the shock and dismay of my diverse, noisy, uh, I'll tell you how to live your life family in New York, aunts and uncles and cousins that are innumerable, uh, who said, why are you going out, Mary, to become a chiropractor at your age with two children, divorced? Uh, but for her, she believed that was the right thing to do. So I have little snippets of memories, one that really kind of explains where I'm going with this story. I'm about eight years old. We're driving to some meeting. My brother and I, he's about a year and a half older. And we're sitting down, and you'd have to be of a certain age to uh, picture this, but we didn't have all of these devices, these technical devices of, uh, that seems to be a new one every day about communication. This one was a gigantic reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder. And my mother said, Ronnie, don't be scared. He says, uh, Richie, just hold on. Hold on to your brother's hand. It'll be OK. So everybody's dressed nice. They got suits. There were no hippies back then in the early 50s. Maybe they were. I don't know. But I didn't know any. So, And the voice comes on. And my mother tells me, Ronnie, these are Martians. So we're listening to a recording of Martians. My heart is pounding. I'm nervous. Martians? You mean like I see on television sometimes in these space movies? Um, and she absolutely believed that. And I believe that. But as, as bizarre as that is, for her to believe that with a seventh grade education, she could graduate from a college that makes you take anatomy and physiology, chemistry, plus medical subjects. Uh, to believe one allowed her to believe that she could actually do something as, as far-fetched and as shocking to her family, who really disowned her for this. They came around in the future. So that's really just lays the groundwork for this. So all my life growing up, I was always trying to figure out, is this one of her beliefs that's grounded in reality? It's some powerful intuitive impulse that causes her to be a doctor, that uh, causes her to pick up and travel through Russia during the communist era. Um, all kinds of wild adventures that she believed was the right thing to do. And there would be these Martian stories once in a while, not, you know, uh, literally Martian stories, but stories that I found out weren't true. Uh, 
So I never knew. Toward the end of her life, she ends up uh, up here in Elliott, Maine, and we were still in New York. And she was uh, fading a little, and probably we were fading a little, so my wife and kids came up to join her. Uh, and it was, it was a good life, uh, primarily up here, because in Elliott there's this beautiful uh, place that was made for her, her true uh, home in the mind. It was uh, a place where people would gather on the shores of the Piscataqua, Transcendentalist is the birthplace of yoga. Who would believe that uh, Elliot Maine is the birthplace of yoga? The first Swami Vivekananda, other Indian seers came over, and this is where it all began. But there was poets and writers, and John Greenleaf Whittier named it Greenacre, and you never know who you would find there. And I, in and I would just go in after work at night and sit down, and she'd be enraptured by old movies. That's what, and she would believe every single thing about them, uh, at least for the hour and a half that the movie was on. And she would cry or she would laugh, and, 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 she, and, and that was so real to me. And... One time, we got too much for me. We were watching, and these might be names that, if you're too young, they may not resonate with you. We were watching this Judy Garland movie. And this was, I think, soon after she had passed away. And her end wasn't the greatest end. Uh, died, I think, broke in London. And my mother was, after the movie, she had a tear in her eye, and she would say, Oh, poor Judy. What's, what was going to happen to her? You know, Ronnie, she died and dead. I don't even know where she's going to be buried, if she'll be buried properly. And I said, I said, Mom, don't worry about that. I read in the paper that uh, a diner in Philadelphia bought her, and they placed her in the lobby under a glass case <laughs> to increase. And she said, that's outrageous. How could they do this? <laughs> and fire and brimstone, how could you treat a wonderful star like that? And I, you know, I don't even know if I, I probably just let her, let that stay. I don't want to deal with her wrath if I actually, mom, you know, I really made that one up. But I felt it was only just, you've had me <laughs> believing in Martians for years. Turnabout is fair play. You can believe that Judy Garland is resting in a glass and case coffin in a foyer of a diner in Philadelphia. What's, what's worst? Ah. So, and then, oh, one, one night we're watching uh, the old movie channel, and it was Carol Lombard was on. Uh, and I don't know if that's a name at the time in the late 30s, the biggest Hollywood star, female star there was. She uh, married uh, Clark Gable in 1939, and together they ruled Hollywood, the biggest male star, the biggest female star. And she just casually said, oh, yeah, yeah, Carol, Carol Lombard was up here. She, uh, she was at Greenacre. She's come to Greenacre. It's 19th century, and I talked about it. And I rolled my eyes. I said, okay. You know, yeah, and I said, well, I'd go along. How about Clark Gable? Did he come with her? Oh, yeah, he came with her. He, he didn't care much for Greenacre. He'd go down to the 
to the river and he would, uh, Piscataqua, and he'd catch fish. Now this and that, <laughs> how, do you expect, how do you expect me to believe that? So I love history. It's the only thing, uh, subject in school that I cared about. Everything else bored me to tears. And, um, but I loved history. And so I, I wrote, uh, Portsmouth has a uh, very knowledgeable historian who sometimes you see in the Portsmouth Herald, uh, J. Uh, Dennis Robinson. And I said, I wrote him, I emailed him, I said, do you have any knowledge of, of uh, Carol Lombard and, and being up here in, in uh, Portsmouth and Elliot? And, uh, he, and he wrote me back, he says, Ryan, there, there's nothing. And uh, I, I've never heard this at all. I, and she, and I heard later that, uh, you know, well, I don't want to give away the story because right now you don't know if this is true or not because I certainly did. So I said, okay, I'm going to put this in the Martian category. This is definitely Martian category. I should have had a box like a Pat. You know, I did not have put a bear into it, but just label it Martian stories and, and just say, okay, this is, I'm going to write this one down and put it in the Martian story box, you know. So... I just, I left it, put it out of my mind. And then I have this other friend who works with people with disabilities. I know a lot of people in that field. And he said, Ronnie, one time I'm riding down Main Street at Elliott, right next to Greenacre, the entrance. Two minutes. Okay, hurry up, Ronnie. And uh, my 80-year-old client woke up out of a stupor, and he points to this little house there, and he says, I was at a party in that room with Carol Lombard when I was 20 years old. And then he went back into his coma or whatever. <laughs> I, hope, I hope my friend Larry didn't go back to his coma because he had to drive. Jeez. So anyway, I had to jump to the chase here. I says, all right. I, I, so I was in the firmly not true category, truly fiction. And, all, and then a new movie comes out on the life of Carol Lombard. My mother has since passed away years and years ago. I just saw this movie about two weeks ago. And there, and halfway through the movie, is footage of Carol Lombard and, and Clark Gable, uh, not two minutes from my house. Apparently, she had a good friend here. They, uh, they used to pal around. She used to go to Greenacre. Uh, and there was this picture of her uh, at Greenacre, and then there's this picture of Clark Gable holding an armful of Piscataqua fish. <laughs> and I say, what the hell? All the things you told me all my life, now I got to go back and revisit them because some of them could actually have been true. Uh, I'll get off, but the, and now, even, I trace the fact that I write books, uh, fiction books for kids and, and some for adults and nonfiction. And I said, what a gift you gave me. Because to be able to write fiction books, you have to believe, even if it's for the minutes that you've got pen to paper, that what you're saying is actually true. Because if you don't believe it, no one else will believe it. Thank you. Thank you, Ronnie. Up next, we have Michael Lang.
He is a writer, musician, and storyteller who lives in Durham, New Hampshire. For nearly a decade, he worked as an outdoor educator, leading wilderness trips and ropes course programs. Mike now runs his own small business, the Coyotes Inkwell, entertaining and educating audiences of all ages with folk tales, fables, true tales, legends, and laughter. This evening, he will share the story of a tall tale he once told at a summer camp. The tale grew taller and somehow truer until his creation became larger than life and way beyond his control. Let's hear what happened in Mike's story, The Ballad of George. It was the summer of 1994. I had just finished fifth grade and would soon be moving on to Oyster River Middle School. I had also just crossed over from Cub Scouts into Boy Scouts and would soon be going off to Hidden Valley Scout Camp for the first time up in the White Mountains of New Hampshire near the town of Gilmington Ironworks. For years, my brothers had been going to this camp and I was so excited that it was finally my turn. Several of my friends, my buddy Mike, and Ashley, and several of the guys from my old Cub Scout den would also be coming along. We were all going to be in the first year program. And instead of working towards merit badges like the older boys, we would be working towards our tenderfoot. The first rank on the long and difficult journey to Eagle. It's said that only one boy out of 100 ever completes that journey. But Mike, Ashley, his older brother, Craig, my older brother Eric and I were all amongst that 1%. But that summer, we were the new boys, learning what it meant to be scouts and also learning how to survive a week of residential summer camp. Early in that week, a group of us decided we would go for a hike up Mount Shannon. Now, Mount Shannon rises about 1,000 feet above the floor of Hidden Valley. Its wooded summit is nestled against the shoulder of Mount Straightback, surrounded by 4,000-foot peaks. Mount Shannon is the little sister lost in the shadows of her bigger and more popular brothers. That afternoon, as we winded our way up the wooded trail, one of the boys with us, a boy named Paul, kept tearing off into the forest, screaming at the top of his lungs. In all the years I've known Paul, he was always a bit of an outsider. He always walked to the beat of his own drum, and most of us never really understood that rhythm. And that afternoon, we were all beginning to lose patience with him. As we started our descent down the backside of Mount Shannon, the sun was getting low. And as Paul came back from one of his charges off into the forest, I looked at him right in the eye, and I said, Paul, you better not do that again. He looked right back at me. Why not? At that moment, I think... The five years that I had spent at that point playing Dungeons and Dragons, a game based on storytelling and imagination, I think it all just flowed out of me at that moment. Because rather than challenging Paul to a fight or threatening him, I looked him right in the eye and I said, because George will get you. George? Yeah. Yeah, man. He's, he's a mounting gorilla. He's been up here for years. And if you go off into the woods by yourself at this close to sunset... He'll get you. And we will have to explain to the adults that we lost you up here on the backside of Mount Shannon. Well, first, Paul looked to all the other boys. That couldn't possibly be true. And this was apparently the cue for my friend Mike to step in with his snakeskin oil salesman grin 
Oh, it's totally possible. I mean, why do you think the adults insist on us always going everywhere in buddy pairs? This was apparently the cue for our friend Ashley to step in with a totally man, totally. <laughs> and this was all the validation my story needed. For the rest of our descent, Paul was the perfect hiker. We could finally enjoy the beauty of the White Mountains at sunset. Well, that evening around the campfire back at our campsite, I heard some whispering amongst the older boys. George, you've never heard of George? Now, part of me was intrigued by this. Another part of me, the part who insists on always giving proper credit to the author of a story, was furious. <laughs> you've never heard of George either. I invented him three hours ago. But I kept silent. And like a rumor on a playground, my story spread through all of Troop 154. Over the course of the next week, each telling got more and more outlandish. George went from being six feet at the shoulder to eight, ten. Nobody's ever seen him walk upright. We don't know how big he is. His fur went from a gray, granite-like color to brown, then a black as night, then back to brown again. And this might have been because one of the older boys had a brown jacket that had been tucked away at the bottom of his footlocker all week. George's eyes went from being a dark red to a blinding white to blue. Then it came to light that one of his eyes had been lost in a fight with a mountain lion. This might have been because one of the older boys had a headlamp with a blue beam that could be narrowed down to a quarter inch in diameter. Well, towards the end of the week, I heard rumors of what the older boys were planning. They were going to somehow convince Paul to go off into the woods alone after dark, and someone would be waiting with the jacket and the headlamp. And this was the point where my father, our current scoutmaster, drew the line. Now, even he had made a few George jokes earlier that week. But as the days had gone by, little by little, we all had realized that Paul actually believed there was something out in the woods waiting for him. And he was truly afraid of it. And now the older boys were going to bring his fears to life. Mike, you have to stop this. I looked at my dad. What, what, do, you, what do you mean I have to? I, I didn't do all this. I just told him a story while we were hiking to get him to behave. Mike, you started this. You have to stop it. And so that afternoon, before the older boys could put their plan into motion, I did the one thing that no artist should ever have to do. I apologized for my art. <laughs> I told Paul I made the whole thing up. There was no such thing as George. I never thought it would go this far. I mean, come on, man. Mountain gorillas, they're indigenous to China. If there was one here in the whites, it'd be a media circus. The thing would either be in a zoo or home by now. Can you forgive me? Well, Paul eventually forgave me. And a good thing, too, because come September, we were in the same sixth grade class. We were also in seventh grade together and eighth. By high school, most of the boys who'd been there that week at Hidden Valley Scout Camp had drifted apart. Last I heard of Paul, he was auditioning to be a professional wrestler. That was about the time I was finishing my degree in outdoor education. I've told a lot of stories around a lot of campfires. I've only apologized for one. But you know what? If you ever find yourself up in the White Mountains, <laughs> around the town of Gilmington Ironworks, and it's close to sunset, you better pray you're not alone. Because George is up there still. You'll hear him coming, 
a thump, thump. His knuckles drag into the bushes. He'll come out of the shadows, bigger than a bear. His eyes, they glow in the night. One bright red, the other dulled by the scratch that a mountain lion gave him. If you meet up with George out there in those mountains, you'll be lucky to get away with your life. So you best beware if you ever go up there. Ballad of George. <laughs> Thanks a lot, everybody. Thanks, Michael. Wow, well, thanks to all of tonight's wonderful storytellers and to our great studio audience for joining us here. Give yourselves a hand round of applause. It's so much more fun with a studio audience. Um, so coming up next, we're going to hear an interview of two of tonight's storytellers, but first let me give you some information here. True Tales Live will be back on March 28th with the theme of Best Laid Plans. We still have room for more storytellers. You can email us at truetaleslive1 at gmail.com if you would like one of those slots. And if you are interested in telling a story, but maybe not confident or you want some help with that, we would love to have you come to one of our workshops. Um, they are held on the first Tuesday of each month from 7.30 to 9 p.m. here at PPM TV. They're free and open to the public, and the next one is March 7th. True Tales Live will continue at PPM TV every last Tuesday of the month, 6.30 to 8 p.m., and we can, will continue to have a live studio audience, which everyone is invited to come for. The show airs on Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. and Saturdays at 1 p.m., on uh, PPM TV channel 98. Thank you. Uh, and will be available under the True Tales Live playlist anytime as video on demand at youtube.com slash PPM TV. Let's give our thanks to some of those who make the show possible. Pat Spaulding, Steve Koval, David Frainer, John Lovering, Bill Humphreys, and Chad Cordner. Until our next True Tales show, on behalf of all of us here, thanks for listening. And we'll now go to Pat Spaulding for the interviews promptly.